morning, everybody. Turn it, Jake. Got it? Okay. It's good to see everyone today. Great to see you. Um, so we're going to continue in, get organized here, continue in Philippians today. Um, and uh, so last time we were ended in verse 18, the beginning of it, and uh, we're going to continue um, at the end of verse 18 this morning. Um, and so, as we've studied multiple times by now, you know, Paul's in prison in, war, in Rome under house arrest. And, um, and so we keep seeing that his whole existence, right, every time, we, every time I come talk to you, his whole existence, especially in this letter, is devoted to the advancement of the gospel and the proclamation of, of Christ's lordship, and this is regardless of his location or his situation. And we see, we keep seeing over and over again that he's glad that his brothers and sisters are becoming emboldened to speak without fear. And even if his personal name is being tarnished um, by some people, as it says in verse 17, um, out of selfish ambition, um, but whether in pretense or in truth, um, Christ's gospel is being preached and that he rejoices in. Um, so this is Philippians chapter 1 again. Maybe I didn't mention the chapter. Um, and the question I asked you last week, um, and I asked myself as well, um, if, if this would be true for us, if we were finding ourselves in this kind of challenging situation, would it be true that our greatest ambition was that Christ would be glorified or Christ's gospel would be preached? Um, or are you dependent, are we dependent on good times in our lives for to be happy or to be joyful? And if so... That is no true joy or happiness in Christ at all. And the joy and relationship that you have with Christ and the victory that he's already won over death, and this is on behalf of the elect or the people that who have faith in him, and this should outweigh any earthly, acute, or chronic uh, affliction that you might be living through. And so I ask you this morning again, will you bless his name no matter what? realizing that he alone has the authority to will whatever he pleases in your life. And this is for your good. And as Job says, or as God says to Job, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Keep this in mind, keep this in your mind this morning as we keep moving through this letter. And I want to read briefly something written by William Cooper, who lived in the late 1600s to reinforce this point. And he says, it is peculiar to, peculiar to Christians to give thanks in adversity, to praise God for blessings. Others can do. But to give thanks in danger is the highest pitch of virtue. I do not see why I should suffer less. These things are very little compared to my sin. I deserve much more at the Lord's hand. Do we not thank the surgeon who removes a damaged limb? The cross God lays upon us is far below what we deserve. What is a drop of sweetened wormwood to the gall of bitterness? What is a little suffering to the lake of fire? Jesus drank the full cup of suffering for us. He drank it fully. We cannot and we need not. Oh, thank God you have so little a share of it. In affliction, we learn that we could not otherwise, what we could not otherwise. So wax, like a seal, wax unheeded will not receive the impression of the seal. Man in affliction will receive the imprint of divine wisdom. It prepares us for glory. And this is not earthly glory. This is heavenly glory. So we move now into verse 18. And uh, 
and this has two different portions, right? So this kind of it's, sometimes it's two different paragraphs in your Bible, um, just depending on which one you're using. And we'll be starting in the latter portion of the, of the verse uh, 18. So it's noted as 18b in some commentaries and things like that. So um, just depending on what you have. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read from God's word. So the end of verse 18 through 19 and uh, through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this, is, this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that you are proud, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, you are perfect, and you sit on your throne this morning. And always, forever. Lord, we are humbled that you would think anything of us, that you would send your son to die. Lord, be with us this morning. Um, Open just everyone's ears and hearts, especially the young children that are here, um, that they would hear uh, you speak to them. Lord, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so... Remember the question I posed to you just a minute ago. And I'm going to paraphrase it, but are you satisfied with your loving Savior's sovereign reign in your life to will whatever he desires? And are you confident in his plan to the point that whatever comes, you will sing his praises? Are you confident in that? And to start off, to really grasp what Paul is trying to say here, moving into these verses from where we came from, Um, we need to recognize that the latter half of this verse 18 where we're starting is a connector between the previous verses and the verses to come. So Paul goes from what brings him rejoicing, which is that Christ's gospel is being preached no matter the cause, to what gives him the confidence in this joy. So you see a joy without confidence in the reality. You see this, this, this joy that he has is real to him. And so that a joy without confidence in reality will never last. So read it like this. I'm just going to paraphrase a couple other ways. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. For I know, or I am confident, or that I will be delivered, right? or because I will be delivered. And you could, you could mix these up a bunch of different ways, but try to think of that that way. So why does Paul bring up confidence in his deliverance at this point? So reading ahead a little bit to verse 20, and we'll come back to it, but there's a sense in which he realizes that there's a time coming where extreme confidence will be needed to exalt Christ in the presence of a Roman emperor. Now let's take a look at what gives Paul his confidence in this joy that he has, or why this proclamation of Christ's gospel is all that matters to him in the face of anything. 
So first, this deliverance that he says he has through the prayers of the believers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this deliverance that he's speaking of? So the Greek word here, used here, that's translated deliverance, is soteria. So which is in the NASB, is translated like 90% of the time, or high 90%, as salvation. So it just happens to be used uh, deliverance here. Um, But the deliverance and the um, salvation are are basically used interchangeably most of the time. And uh, there are others, like King James, that do actually use the word salvation here. Um, so usually in the context of this, of this word, um, this is not just, just talking about the salvation from one's earthly enemies, if you understand. This word soteria is used in the context of salvation from the wrath of God. So a couple examples of this. And I think this word is used like 30 sometimes or, or maybe more. But uh, see Paul's first letter to uh, Thessalonians in chapter 5. You want to turn there. Um, and then uh, this is verse 8 and 9 I'm going to read. Remember, this is, this is in reference to the word soteria or salvation and what it's referring to. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Timothy is one other example I'm going to give you. Um, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 10. And, uh, verse 10 says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain, also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it their eternal glory. So you see, we don't talk about salvation and eternal glory in the context of deliverance from one's earthly enemies or the ones who are against us. So eternal glory is reserved for those which are found to be in Christ at the final judgment. And so we read about the new earth. So I'm just going to go through you know, what, we, what we have hope in right, and what, um, what it means to be saved, right? what our salvation is. So eternal glory is reserved for those which are found to be in Christ, the final judgment, as I said. We read about the new earth in Revelation 21, and references to our new bodies which will inhabit this new earth are found all over Paul's writings, including right here in Philippians, a different chapter. But understand that salvation, as we talk about it, is revealed to John in Revelation 20. So I'm going to read that for you. And this goes, this is God's, this is God's judgment, right? So both... Um, the wrath, and then we'll talk about the, the glorified um, new earth and new heaven later, or in a minute. But this is, the, this is the judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So immediately following this, John sees the new heaven 
and the new earth, in which God promises to wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things which we currently live, this, this body we live, and the earth we live, have passed away at this point. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So this is the confidence in, in salvation that Paul speaks of, right? He's looking forward to this. There are some who have said that Paul simply knows that he will be found innocent before Caesar. Thus, he's speaking of being delivered from the hands of the Roman government. So there's some people that read this that way. But this is not the case if you look at verse 20. He clearly does not know the result of the trial with Caesar, verse 20, saying that he hopes that he will, be not, he will not be ashamed, but be able to speak boldly for Christ, whether that results in life or death, just by that deliberation in front of Caesar. So this is not a man trying to wiggle out of a dangerous situation to save himself. And this is not how he's speaking. He's speaking about salvation from the wrath of God. So again, as I mentioned to you last time, look at all of these things that Paul is saying against the backdrop of his imprisonment, and his impending trial, right? He's, he's basically locked down, and he's, he realizes someday he's going he's gonna to be judged in front of Caesar. And so is this how you would speak? And is this how you speak now, even in lesser things? Even if your life is not in danger, necessarily? You cannot begin to understand the infinite value of the salvation bought by the blood of Christ until you, you see yourself being unworthy of anything but being thrown into the lake of fire, as Revelation 21.8 says. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Do you see this is, without Christ, this is all of us. So you cannot speak with confidence in your salvation until you know for certain that this truth that's revealed to us is what will happen unless you are found righteous in Christ. And what you see, this is us without Christ. Do you see that? And do you believe with certainty that this will happen? So what Paul is saying here is that he's not in need of earthly deliverance because we already saw last time in verse 16 of chapter 1 that he is not at all concerned with his present circumstances. He's more concerned with Christ being preached and Christ being glorified. And he's already certain that regardless of the outcome of his life, he will be delivered from the wrath of God at the final judgment, the judgment we just read about. So bear with me just for a minute, and we're going to get to how Paul has deliverance through the prayers and spirit, um, the spirit of, of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. So it says here that Paul finds confidence, or he knows, that's what the NASB says, in the, he has confidence in the prayers of the saints, and this is because he realizes the power that prayer has, even in relation to a sovereign God. So listen to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, and it says, you also, joining and helping, he's talking to the, the believers at Corinth, you also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So he's talking about, right, the favor bestowed by God on the believer through the prayers of many, even a sovereign God. So there are many other references of Paul asking the brothers and sisters to pray for him or to intercede for him, right? Or to inter intercede for his mission. So here Paul knows that through the prayers of his fellow believers, he has others also on his side 
asking for favor with the Father, and his confidence is increased because of this. His confidence in what, right? So as a believer in the atonement of Christ, he's also entitled to the provision of the Holy Spirit, which he calls here the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There are two things going on that I want to—that I read into this when I was studying, okay? So I want to I tell you about those. The first is that Paul is aware of the power of the Spirit that works within him, and the second being that he's aware that he will need this power when going before the emperor who will interrogate him and decide his fate. Both ideas are captured when Jesus says in Matthew 10, and this is verses 16 through 20, Matthew 10, 16 through 20, and this is also repeated in Luke 12, the same, the same um, I don't know, basically quotation from Jesus. And verse 16 says, Behold, I send you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. This is a kind of a prophecy, right? For Paul's condition. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. And so I want you to see that the nature of this deliverance, um, as we already discussed, is one of, of eternal nature, right? Not one of, of, this, of this life. So now listen to Jesus in the next verses here, verse 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and father and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will, be, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And so this means that when we have run the race that God has laid before us, faithfully and with endurance to the end, this shall be our deliverance. So read verses 19 and 20 in Philippians chapter 1 again. Just think about how this is coming together. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. See, he's looking forward. But that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, this is what he's, he's longing for as more than anything, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so you see in verse 20, he's talking about the trial yet to come with Caesar, right? This is where the power of prayer that he talked about and the provision of the Spirit of Christ will be manifest at this point in time. He's looking forward to this. So his actions and his speech, his boldness for Christ that he's talking about, will match his earnest expectation and hope. It means he hope he and, and expects that he can, can carry this out with the, the help of the Spirit and with the help of prayer. So why? So again, we go back to the chief end of man. And the question one in our catechism. So what is the chief end of man? Anybody know? You know, I know, you know. I don't want to say that anyway. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Don't ever forget that. That's everything in our lives can, can be, if you look at it like a tree, right? Everything in our lives can come down from that. As long as you look always back to that, you can find the answers in a lot of different things, even without um, knowing a bunch of detail about you know exactly what this verse says or that verse. If you look to that, you can interpret all everything through that. So he says here in verse 20, so that Christ will be in, exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So Paul desires, and he has a supreme joy in the confidence that the prayers of the believers and the Holy Spirit will give him strength to never deny Jesus Christ in the face of any adversity, and thus he will exalt Christ in his life or death. And at that point, he will finish the race, right? We talk about that was laid out for him, ending in deliverance from eternal death, not necessarily deliverance from a government. And so, can you say that today? Whether by your life or by your death, in whatever the circumstances, that your greatest desire is that God be glorified. And when you're sitting, you're sitting in your pew. I want you to do some self-examination. This is talking to me too, standing here. So, what in your life would demonstrate this to be true? If you if you answered yes to that question, what would demonstrate this? And as John uh, Wish preached last week in James uh, chapter two, verse fourteen says, "What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? Save him?" Brothers and sisters, James is asking you the very same question that I am. Examine your hearts to find whether you are in the faith. Do you cling to your very life because you are comfortable here? And just know that your wealth, if you have it, and your good health, if you have it, will fail someday. Don't be like the Pharisee that Jesus rebukes in Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So when you come to the end of your life, which only the Father has ordained the time and place for you, will you have spent your time polishing the outside of your dish? Or will you cry out to God like David in Psalm Psalm 39? And David says, Lord, make me to know my end, and what what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks without, about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing with reproofs from you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. This is to a man. So surely every, every man is a mere breath. So do you cling to your life even if you're not comfortable, because you're afraid even of what lies in wait for you. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Will you simply not trust God? So listen to Psalm 36 again, what the Lord has spoken about himself, and this is through David. 
Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep, O Lord. You preserve a man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. O continue your loving loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Now here's where this all comes together in a nice summary for us. These, These several verses before, and where we're going to learn afterward. And back to verse 21 of Philippians, chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And this, is, this is with an exclamation mark, right? It may as well be all capitals, right? Like in the people type on the internet now. Right? Have you ever thought a lot about this verse? I just started thinking about this a lot. It's incredibly short, but it captures so simply the Christian life, or what should be the, the Christian life. So everything that Paul is talking about here comes to be summarized in this very verse. And that, that is a life devoted entirely to Christ and realizing that the promise of the being with him is infinitely greater, right? Infinitely greater than anything in this life. And that this means that you strive to live only for him and to his glory. And those works that were created for you to walk in, you will do with joy and with thanksgiving. So even so, while doing this, you realize just like we've been talking about that a glorified body and a treasure awaits, awaits you so that this temporary life is easily worth giving up when it comes time. And as Paul says, to die is gain. That's what that means. And this is not to say we should walk around, right, like looking to die, like jump, anyway, you know, picture all these things you could, you could do, right? Um, but, you know, this is not honoring God with the gift of life that he has given to us, like just acting recklessly. But it means that in living for Christ, if it causes you to lose your life in the process, we should not look at it like a loss, right? Instead, we should count it as gain, for we will be with Christ. So Paul goes on here in verse 22. Look down a little bit further. So when he appears before Caesar, where he will learn his fate, he's torn about which outcome he desires more. To serve Christ in this life or depart to be with him in the next? Right? Verse 22. But if I'm to live on in the flesh... This will, remi- this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not w- know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So here Paul is being led by the Spirit, right? He's talking through which is, be- which is the better option for himself. He doesn't know which to choose. He desires to be with Jesus, but yet he realized that the labor for the sake of the early church may be more necessary for him to do now. So we need to notice something, that he's not looking at the option to go be with Christ as the one which he says, is, he is looking at the option to go be with Christ as the one which he says is the better option, right? He is doing this. So do we look at our lives in the same way? So I was considering making an analogy of, of uh, like taking a vacation or going to work. Right, I was considering that, but I'm like, as I thought about it, I thought about it. I thought that, like it wasn't really a good one for the Christian life, 
And simply for the fact that Paul says, I do not know which one to choose. And I think we would all know, like, you want to go to work, you go to vacation, right? Like, which one you would choose. But Paul, actually, he, he's, he's struggling to, to understand whether he would rather work for Christ or just go be with Christ, right? Meaning that he has a desire to do both, and he doesn't know which one to choose. So in this way, like, the vacation, the human vacation is not a good comparison to going to be with Christ at all. Um, and what we learn from this failed comparison, anyway, at least in my mind, is that working for Christ in this life and going to be with him in the next should both be desirable for us. Even though we know, as Paul says, that being with Christ is better, we should, not also, we should, should we not also be happy to stay and work for him? That's what he's called us to do. So finally we come to the end of Paul's deliberation in verse 25 and 26 on this where he says he understands it is better for him to go be with Christ, but he realizes that he may need to wait for that sometime later. So convinced that it may be better for him that he remains alive to continue to lead and encourage the churches um, that you know been started around the Mediterranean area. So, But even doing this, right, he continues to make plans to go other places as well, as we've seen before. And this is for their progress and the joy in the faith, so that he says in verse 26, their profound confidence in him will abound in Christ Jesus. And when he sees them again, still not being completely sure about the result of the meeting with Caesar, as he later says in Philippians chapter 2, he's still not sure. So understanding he may be called to a martyr's death, and, he, and it says later to be poured out as a drink offering. Right? And so a couple things I want to pick out of these verses for you. And the first is that it says that you know, Paul is saying that his primary purpose in staying, meaning that if he will be found innocent in the emperor's court, is not so that his life will be extended, right? So just for the sake of not losing his life, right? So it won't be extended. But that he desires to see the believers in Philippi continue to grow in maturity or progress in their faith. And that's, his, that's why he wants to stay. So, and this is to a more complete understanding of their, their life in Christ, as he says, as we, we've already seen in many places, the only complete joy anyone can have is through faith in Christ. And so the second thing this morning is that I don't want you to understand, I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is saying in verse 26. It's, it might be possible, like if you're not really sure, um, or if you don't have a couple translations available to you, so it's possible to read maybe out of context here that Paul is saying that somehow this joy or confidence of the believers is being found in himself and not in Christ. And this is not the case at all. So I found, in this case, I found the ESV a little bit more understandable. And that says, so that in me, so so if his life is extended, right? So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. And so just understand that he desires that people rejoice in Jesus if he's able to see them again. And, And knowing that it is God's sovereign will that determined it. And so think about this. Think about this concept. So when we hear of a positive outcome, so in Paul's situation, if it, if it, if it leads to his life being extended, for example, um, if we hear about a, a positive outcome in a situation, like whether it's the, you know, the recovery of a relationship between two people or groups of people or someone's health being restored um, or even you know, John and Kristen um, when they got the call uh, that James was born and then he needed a family, right? That was a, a pretty happy time, I think. 
So when we say praise God about the outcome, what are we really saying? Are we saying that God kind of just eke that out one, eke that out for us, like on our side, that you know, like the devil almost got us or or whatever? Or should we really be implying that God is on His throne and fulfilling His promises for those He loves? So putting what we've already learned through Paul about how we're to view our lives, when we learn of a life extended or other good news, for example, or a new life given or an accident avoided, the way we should look at that is the same as Paul looks at his whole situation here in prison. Any way that God answers prayers for his glory and is for that purpose. So let us rejoice in that when we say praise God, rejoice in that. If a life is ended, how are we to glorify God in it? When a promotion comes, how can we glorify God in that? And make no mistake, God deserves to be worshipped and glorified, always, in everything. And so will you be satisfied that all endings are what God desires? Consider who you are and who God is as, I'm, as I read a writing from the Valley of Vision. I don't have it with me. I, I just typed it here. But if you close your eyes with me, I'm going I'm to end in this prayer, okay? So this is just going to be our prayer today, and, and then I'll, I'll finish. You pray with me. Lover to the uttermost, may I read the meltings of thy heart to me in the manger of thy birth, in the garden of thy agony, in the cross of thy suffering, in the tomb of thy resurrection, in the heaven of thy intercession, Bold in this thought, I defy my adversary, tread down his temptations, resist his schemings, renounce the world, am valiant for truth. Deepen in me a sense of my holy relationship to thee, a spiritual bridegroom, as Jehovah's fellow, as sinner's friend. I think of thy glory and my vileness, thy majesty and my meanness, thy beauty and my deformity, thy purity and my filth, thy righteousness and my iniquity. Thou hast loved me everlastingly, unchangeably. May I love thee as I am loved. Thou hast given thyself for me. May I give myself to thee. Thou hast died for me. May I live to thee in every moment of my time, in every movement of my mind, in every pulse of my heart, May I never dally with the world and its allurements, but walk by thy side, listen to thy voice, be clothed with thy grace, and adorned with thy righteousness. Father, um, Lord, thank you for, uh, for adorning us with your righteousness. Lord, for we cannot achieve it by ourselves. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, your only son. And Lord, let us learn from Paul. May we lead lives that are purely devoted, not only partially, but purely devoted to your glory in all things. In Christ's name, amen.